This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for mid-November 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's assistant professor of systematic theology and spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, it's good to be seen and better to see you. We have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a little bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or interview or other good things like that. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. That's the word effect. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible. So please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. This episode, we are continuing our theme of talking about issues and friction points and pinch points in the church. Today, we're so pleased to have a conversation later in the episode with Father Jim Martin, S.J. of America Magazine. So, Dan, how have you been? David, I've been well. Um, it's that time of year. In the last episode, we talked about the weather changing, it getting chilly. It has remained chilly here in Chicago. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, I had the great uh, privilege last weekend to escape from uh, the, the frigid cold of uh, the northern Midwest and uh, was in San Antonio, Texas, uh, speaking at an archdiocesan assembly that was absolutely amazing. Why? What, um, what, what was amazing about it? It was amazing for a number of reasons. First and foremost, I'd have to say, are, are the staff of the archdiocese. This conference, I, I, I'm very fortunate to be able to go to a number of diocesan conferences. Perhaps the most famous being the diocese, archdiocese of Los Angeles. Their 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 religious education congress every spring is is really extraordinary and huge. You know, thousands and thousands. And this was a little bit smaller, only about four thousand people, but um, it was flawless. The way that the volunteers were engaged, it was on, it took place on the campus of St. Mary's University in San Antonio, and students were involved. I have to say that the Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Gustavo, and his auxiliary bishop, Bishop Mike, are just wonderfully pastoral, present, 
prayerful and listening uh, people. And so, you know, without spending too much time talking about this, I'll just highlight two things that were extraordinary about it for me. One was it wasn't just um, an opportunity for ongoing educational formation, though that was a part of it. The the archdiocese kind of divided itself according to various deaneries and geographic regions and kind of mixed groups of people from across the archdiocese together into these six or seven different tracks. And then the kind of coordinators for those groups came up with a theme and then the archdiocese invited a speaker to address that theme. And so I was one of these speakers and and each of us would address about 800 or so um, Catholics from, from Texas. And the theme I was asked to talk about was renewed approach to preaching. And what would happen then is uh, the speaker would speak for some time. The folks in the respective areas, in my case, it was in the basketball arena, would get together in these groups of about 10 folks in a circle. They would reflect on these questions. What did we hear? What does this mean for us? How do we implement some of these things? And then they reported back, you know, really in this kind of parliamentary kind of you know, really engaged conversational dialogical style. And at the end of the day, Archbishop Gustavo and Bishop Mike sat on the stage in this huge basketball arena and uh, a representative of each of those areas got up in front of the whole archdiocese as it was represented and presented to the bishops what they heard, how it applies to them as, as they see it applying to the church of San Antonio. Um, and it was really one of the clearest kind of examples of synodality, this idea of, of walking, listening together. It was an example, we would say, in technical ecclesiological or, or theology of church language. It was an example of both the church as teacher and the church as listener. I was going to say, this This kind of sounds like what we talk about when we talk about census fidelium, the kind of, the kind of ideas of the faithful that bring us knowledge and wisdom within the church. That's right, yeah. And, and that, not to get too technical about it, but th- there's two parts to that sense of the faithful. As you say, the census fidelium, you know, what the faithful have received. But there's also this census fide, this kind of innate ability, this capacity that every baptized person has to perceive the faith and therefore offer a response to that. And so it's not just a top-down approach where the archbishop says, here's what you need to do. It's rather listening organically, surfacing from the field, from the people, from the from the baptized, having after they had this experience of listening to experts in, in particular areas, theologians, for instance, and scripture scholars and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. The other thing about it that was amazing was it ended with a real celebration of the cultural heritage of the Mexican-American context of San Antonio. And Archbishop Gustavo is originally from Mexico. He's a mem- he's a religious who came as a missionary into the States in uh, Texas and was made a bishop, the bishop of the diocese, and is a big fan of, uh, of mariachi. And so there was this tremendous, at the end of the assembly, when they kind of formally closed it, it became this like beautiful celebration with this huge mariachi band with violins and the guitars and the trumpets and and everything. It was just amazing. And uh, Archbishop Gustavo himself was kind of dancing along, celebrating. It was a real sense of enculturation and celebration of of the diversity uh, and the real heritage of the community. So I just, I think the world of the event and of the Archdiocese of uh, San Antonio. And so my my shout outs to Archbishop Gustavo, Bishop Mike, and, and the whole crew there in the Archdiocese. That sounds wonderful. And I, those moments where where, where we see the church being the richness of its cultures is those moments are just magical to me. Uh, 
I worked for a year at Catholic Theological Union, and you, of course, work at Catholic Theological Union. And every every year around Mardi Gras, there's a celebration of cultures that happens there, where all the and the students that are at Catholic Theological Union come from all over the world, and so they they bring from their culture and they they present and they and they offer and they share. And it, it's wonderful. I bring my children back to that because they, they ask me every year, Papa, when are we going to go see that party again? And what they mean by that is just this, this outpouring of joy of this is who we are and we're sharing it and we're, and we're taking it in. It's just a rich time whenever that gets to happen. And that's one of the things that I love about the Catholic Church is that it's not one culture. It is so many different cultures. And the, the ability to walk into any church in the world and have a shared liturgy, but then to have the richness of that culture, that just means a, a great deal to me. So, so help me to understand, when you're, when you're being taken to these various places, because you travel all the time, uh, you're traveling on behalf of the Franciscans, you're invited as a speaker— but how do they know to find you? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it sounds at times more glamorous than it actually is, uh, although it is a real privilege. It's a real honor to be able to interact with these local churches, with these universities, um, with these communities and retreat centers and so forth. And so, you know, I, I take I don't take it for granted and I take it as a great honor and, and a great responsibility. And I think folks, you know, come to know of me in, in a variety of ways, either Folks have heard me speak or they've read my my popular writings or my academic writings. You know, in this case, I know that Bishop Mike, the auxiliary bishop of, of San Antonio, was aware of, of my work and speaking and, and writing. And I think he might have had something to do with, you know, floating my name. But I don't always know, you know, a direct line quite like that. Um, I'm actually leaving this week. Um, this is – so we're recording the week before uh, Thanksgiving – and uh, I'll be in Edmonton, Alberta. And so so as if it weren't, I go from San Antonio back to Chicago to the cold to the way north. <laughs> it doesn't get much more north than northern Canada uh, in November to speak to this this gathering of Catholic educators um, that takes place. And uh, Canada is very different from the United States in the way that Catholic education works. Uh, so I don't want to get into the details there, but it's um, it's it's a large event where – now, those responsible for the Catholic schools from elementary to secondary and so forth uh, come together. And so, again, that's that's a great experience, and I'm looking forward to that. But let me ask you, we've, we've been talking a lot about me just now. How are you and what's going on? So I, I will be transparent and say that uh, as we're recording today, I'm in the midst of some struggle, and I'm going to talk about that in kind of two passes. And one will be more lighthearted and one will be more more true. So the, the lighthearted one is that um, over – the past weekend, my two children, as a part of their growing, they're seven and eight, and we're trying to give them more and more responsibility. So we got them both radio alarm clocks, just cheap alarm clocks from Target that have a radio function so that they can they can wake up in the mornings on their own and we don't have to wake them up. It's a great step. But they discovered that these radio alarm clocks have radios that function when they're not alarm clocks. Oh. And, and they, they have been – it's been delightful to watch them discover the magic of radio. That's been great because they really – other than the car, they haven't really experienced this before. But my daughter figured out that one of the stations here in town has already begun playing Christmas music. Oh, no. And so she has been listening to that nonstop and uh, – and we we had a conversation. <laughs> we had a conversation about this. I was like, "It's it's not even Thanksgiving yet." And she goes, "Papa, I don't care. I'm just so full of joy for the Christmas season." And I, I, I so it is great for her. It's a personal point of 
struggle for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have uh, just a few years on her of listening to Mariah Carey singing All She Wants for Christmas is You. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although it, it, their their definitions of Christmas music have become interesting. So I heard like the Charlie Brown theme, which makes sense, but it's it's you know not Christmas music per se. So they, they do have some latitude in what they're doing. But I'm just aware that the next six weeks are going to be are going to be fraught with with this because my daughter's joy is hard to say no to. Does does your daughter, given her personality, well, do you have a sense that she'll get sick of it before Christmas, or do you think she's gonna? This is her her jam, and she's just gonna go with it. No, because she the apple did not fall far from from the tree. When I get on a jam, I I can do it to death. She will she'll be on this until after they stop playing it. So it's going to be a good Friday and she's blasting the Christmas music still. <laughs> if she can figure out a way to do it. So that's the lighthearted one. The, the other one is, and I'll just be, uh, I, I've been transparent about this with you. I'll be transparent a little bit with listeners and those who follow me on social media know that this is not uh, odd for me to talk about this. So I, I do have some personal struggles with uh, some emotional issues and uh, these last few days, I have had a, a greater bout of anxiety and a touch of depression than I've normally had. I, I am well supported. I have good support structures and, uh, and, and people that love me and are surrounding me. So I'm not in any danger, but I just, I am, I'm not functioning with all of my cylinders firing over the last few days. And it'll, it'll pass. It passes like the weather. But, you know, sometimes it comes for a day like the weather does, and sometimes it comes for multiple days or for weeks. So I'm not sure how long it'll be here, but I, I like I say, I'm continuing to, to function and I'm continuing to get my work done and I'm, uh, and I'm as happy as I can be right now, which is given me pretty happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the writing continues to go well. Work continues to be very interesting and varied. And, uh, and I'm, I'm delighted by my family despite the Christmas music and, I'm, <laughs> and, and we're getting ready. Uh, and I'm, I wanted to ask you about this as well. We're getting ready in the coming week to travel back to Pennsylvania, uh, to be with my wife's family around Thanksgiving. Are you going to get, are you going to get a chance to see your family at all over the holiday? Well, well, before I say that, let me just, uh, if I may, comment and, and say, first of all, uh, to express certainly on my behalf, um, and I've been really privileged to know you, call you a friend, a colleague, to a collaborator in this enterprise. And I hope I'm not misspeaking to speak on behalf of our listeners mm -hmm. uh, to express a sense of, of, of gratitude and respect um, and vener kind of veneration for or, or reverence for um, your you know, willingness to open up and share. And, and, um, that's not always easy. And in a, in an age, you know, we'll, we'll be talking later in the episode with father Jim Martin about, you know, the, the kind of burden at times that's placed on people who are suffering in various ways, particularly the LGBTQ community and how the burden is on them in sense, in a sense to come out and to share their story. And that is a double burden because one is already suffering and bearing a lot and then it falls to to those persons to have to share their story. And so, David, I, I want to thank you for trusting us and sharing that with us. We don't take it lightly. Well, th thank you for that. One of the things that I have learned, and social media has helped me with this, is because I'm well-supported, because I do have a structure around me that uh, that keeps me safe and keeps me stable in these times, I, I'm aware that I have a privilege because when I go through this, I don't necessarily go through it with the extremity that some people do. People who, who are facing these sorts of things and don't have those kind of support structures and who are alone, I, I have learned that being able to talk about this from my place of, of, of support when I'm in pain 
Uh, it doesn't put me at tremendous risk, but it can be at times uh, a, a way of helping other people know that they're not alone and to show solidarity with folks that are struggling with either similar or disparate uh, types of issues that I'm struggling with. So uh, it's a it's a it's an honor for me to be able to to be transparent, and I'm I'm I I take the responsibility seriously, and so it's it's partly kind of how I how I want to be there for others who are in this as well. So I, I thank you for those kind words. But let's, since we're being thankful, let's talk about Thanksgiving. I'm interested in, in whether or not you're yeah. going to get a chance to see your family. So um, not my uh, biological family, sure. um, but my Franciscan family. Mm. Uh, we Our local community here, uh, the Blessed Giles Friary, it's, it's our practice annually to celebrate Thanksgiving uh, locally here. And so there are six of us permanent members of this community. We're all soundly professed. Um, and you know quite a few of them. So what we what we typically do is few of us uh, led in some way I shouldn't say led but encouraged or or, or goaded by me um, run a turkey trot in the morning on the north end and so I've managed to hoodwink two of my <laughs> fellow friars to do that and we're trying to to get some other guys from from the other communities to join us as well um, so the day starts off for some of us you know running this this uh, road race in full habits right not at all no. <laughs> I can barely walk in a full habit. There's a lot of fabric there. Um, if I tried running at my race pace in a habit, I'd make about three steps before falling flat on my face. Um, so then we we divide different responsibilities. Uh, Brother John Barker, who is an Old Testament professor and uh, member of our community, is an extraordinary baker, an extraordinary cook, and he loves it. It's one of his uh, great gifts, and it's also one of his great pleasures. And so um, every year he says, as we're we're going around the community, deciding who's going to do what responsibilities, you know, for setting up and and organizing a prayer for the day and uh, working on uh, various things, he says, you know, I, I would like to to cook, but if somebody else wants to, we can, you know, we can talk about it. And every year we everybody immediately uh, unanimously endorses his his cooking. It's extraordinary. Um, so what we do is we we have you know the kind of classic uh, Americana Thanksgiving spread, um, and usually four or five hundred pies or whatever John bakes up. Um, and one of the traditions that we have as well is, you know, because two of us are faculty members at CTU and and the other four are, are students of one sort or another. Um, we, we've developed this tradition uh, in the house of of inviting a couple particularly uh, lay students who are from uh, out of town, you know, usually from far away, uh, different states who are studying um, at, at our graduate school at the Catholic Theological Union who may not have another place to go for Thanksgiving. And so this year, my understanding is we'll have three students joining us. Um, and that's always a lot of fun. Um, I don't know if they always realize what they're getting into because we're a zany bunch uh, that like to laugh and, and have a good time. Um, but but it's really uh, a joy and a privilege to be able to do that. So um, the one other tradition we have is so we, we have this kind of big Thanksgiving celebration where we try to be as hospitable and welcoming to those you know in our, in our communities who don't have a place to go. And then the next day, we usually hit the road as, as the six of us and, and go to um, a place up in, in, in Wisconsin where we spend a weekend retreat. It's, it's a community-focused uh, kind of retreat, and that helps us transition really into Advent. Uh, we do it once in the fall and once in the spring. And so, you know, it's, it's a busy time of year. I know you know this as well as I do. 
Um, so it's something I'm, I'm very much looking forward to as an opportunity to kind of get away and to reset and, and to be with the fraternity. So that's good. Do you personally, Dan Haran, have a favorite Thanksgiving food? Ooh. I mean, uh, no. <laughs> I don't mean to be contrarian. Um, I was just thinking about it, and everyone that came to mind, I'm like, oh, no, but what about this? But what about this? I, I love mashed potatoes. I mean, it, I'm kind of a stereotypical Irishman in that regard. And, and I also, and I, this might be sacrilege to some of our listeners, I like to mix it all together. You know, and so I'm, I'm a fan. The British have, um, if, if you're over in the UK, sometimes they'll have these like what I would call a Thanksgiving sandwich for sale, you know, where there's turkey and cranberry and stuffing all kind of shoved into some bread. I, I like that idea. I like mixing it together. So I love cranberry sauce. You know, the turkey is not always my favorite, but but I roll with it. Uh, I love mashed potatoes uh, and, and I and I love pie. Pumpkin pie is is my, one of the go-tos. How about you? I'm a big fan of pie and you just named pumpkin pie. But I will say as I have gotten older, I have finally been able to publicly admit that my favorite thing about Thanksgiving is jellied cranberries from the can that still look like the can when you oh, slice them. Oh, yes. I, I, I have... I have such a deep love of that. Just a slice of that kind of awful cranberry slab that hasn't <laughs> been mushed up to make it look like something else, but it looks like it came out of a can. That to me is paradise. I really, and it's, it goes great with mashed potatoes. It goes great with turkey. It goes great with stuffing. So it, it's the perfect mixer and it's, it's the sweet to any of the savory. It's just. It's like that's that's Thanksgiving to me. That followed by a, a good slice of pumpkin pie with a lot of whipped cream. That's that's what I love. That's really great. Well, maybe this is a good opportunity talking about Thanksgiving for us to, to, to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and look at the theme for uh, this episode. You know, as our listeners know at this point, uh, season three of the Francis Effect podcast has really been focused on the various ways that Catholic Christians are experiencing tensions and frustrations within the church. And in this episode, we're looking at the LGBTQ community, our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and, and otherwise queer sisters and brothers uh, in, in the Catholic Church. And this is perhaps, you know, more so than the other uh, topics we've looked at. And, and it's, it's really maybe not accurate to say or come up with some sort of hierarchy or comparison about whose suffering or whose tensions or frustrations are, are worse than another's. We're not trying to say that. But for reasons that will become clear in our conversation after the break with Father James Martin, there's a special burden that LGBTQ Catholics carry. And that, you know, in part includes the fact that they're one of the few communities that by their very existence are identified with a kind of sin or some kind of evil or something that's wrong for all the oppression and all the other forms of, of subjugation and uh, ignoring and dismissal. Um, this one reaches, we might say in a philosophical way, at a deep ontology. It, it strikes one's very being. So, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is, you know, this question about why is this so extreme? Why is this the, the kind of vitriol that that people uh, experience on, as as kind of victims of of this hatred, but also something David you you talk often about um, and, and have brought up in, in earlier episodes about the identification for those who may find themselves in positions of privilege who have you know a voice who have maybe a small platform like we do here with this podcast to reach an audience. 
that we too become kind of embroiled in this hatred, in this vitriol. I, I don't know if you have, you know, your perception, you've shared that over the course of this podcast now going on three seasons, that you've experienced perhaps a ratcheting up of social media trolls and hatred and, and kind of hostility. You know, I imagine after this episode drops, we're going to experience that as well. Well, there's a lot to think about and reflect on what you're saying. And I, I love the way that you've kind of set up this conversation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to speak personally for a few minutes, and then we're going to transition into our conversation with Father Jim Martin. So I will say, first of all, that uh, my experience with LGBTQI issues is complex. Those that have listened to the show for a while and those that have followed me on social media may know that I'm very open about the fact that I was not raised Catholic. I was raised atheist and that I was raised in a broken home, mostly by my mother. Uh, my mother, who is now deceased, she passed away in 2009. When I left for college, she came out publicly as uh, as a lesbian. And so my experience of her process, both prior to that and after that, has shaped a lot of my thoughts on this issue. That also is paralleled by growing up in the 1980s and uh, finishing high school in at the end of the 1980s and going into the 1990s. I had many friends because I was part of a, a sort of an artistic group of people down in the deep south, many friends who identified in some part of the spectrum of same-sex attraction. Uh, and we had differing kind of ways of talking about it then or not talking about it then. But it was, it was well known, but it was also a moment where those that knew also knew that their knowledge could get this person killed. Uh, and there were, there were times both when I was in high school and college where those that were in my immediate social circle were under direct physical threat or were under attack. Uh, so this is, this is something that for people who are my age, regardless of how they choose to identify publicly with regard to their sexual orientation, they are aware that this is not just an issue that has, that's an armchair conversation, but it's an issue that has to be treated with a great deal of gravity. And some listeners have written back complaining about the way that I use terminology sometimes with this, and I think appropriately so. I just want to say that when, when I approach this discussion, I am thinking particularly of my mother's experience, I'm thinking of my own experience, I'm thinking of my friend's experience, and the ways in which we use public conversation to talk or not talk about this, and the danger that comes with that, because sometimes talking about this in a way that makes people think that you have direct experience with this by whatever fashion can, and this speaks to your question, can make you a target. And so it's, it's a reflex that comes from both wanting to protect myself and my family, but also to protect my friends to sometimes speak of this in a way that is less than direct. And so I'm, I'm older than you. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to name that and say, that's a struggle that I have as the conversation publicly has changed. It has been difficult for me to trust that it is possible to speak about these things. There are people who have these experiences who have been politically active and who have been out who are very able to be much more public and much more free with their language than I feel comfortable being. And this is a point of growth for me. So that's that's part of my entry into this conversation. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, and this is more information than even we've shared personally before So on this particular topic. And so it's very helpful. And it it, it points to something that I've been very mindful of and at times am more or less patient with, and that is the generational divides and gaps that exist. And and as, as our kind of society increases with its ability to communicate and the 
access people have to information and to thoughts and to disclosure and everything, there are kind of breakdowns of your standard generational kind of demographics. And so now we have almost micro generations. And I find myself in, in one of those, right? I was born in, in 1983, actually about a, in a week, less than a week, it would be 35 years ago. And, you know, demographers have been now identifying something they're calling zennials, which is you know, either the really oldest or first millennials, which I had been kind of categorized in before, or the end of Gen X. And another way, the, the way the demographers have talked about it is that I had, and it's 100% correct, an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. And so I experienced a real kind of liminality having gone through high school in the 90s, for instance, where we didn't have cell phones and the internet was was literally just a, a thing that people were getting with dial up and AOL. I mean, this was a brand new thing. Um, so the experience of knowing of other communities, knowing of other realities and cultures and identities and experiences in the world and relationality, that was very different growing up. And so on one hand, I, I'm very sympathetic to the generations that are before me, you know, that have come before me, including you. You're, you're older than me, not that much older, not a full kind of generation, but – but significantly enough that when you're going through high school in the 80s, for instance, very different experience. And yet now I also see my sisters and brothers who are younger than me and their experience is so very different. And I, I think that's part of the kind of clash that goes on culturally in society. And I think it plays itself out in the church as well. You know, that, you know, you named your own kind of struggle and, and uh, hesitancy and understandably um, kind of cautious embrace of different terms that I think people who are 10, 15, 20 years younger than me uh, and in you are just, they just presume, they just take it for granted. And I'm curious to see how that's going to have an impact. I think we saw it play out in the Synod on Young People uh, just this past fall in October, where a number of bishops were very kind of incensed about the fact that young people in particular and a number of voting members of the Synod wanted to use the very simple acronym LGBT. And a lot of them, you know, septa and octogenarians found it a, quite an affront. <laughs> they said, you know, this is capitulating to an ideology or a, a, some sort of tacit embrace of a, a culture or something. And so they've resorted to more technical and, and at times offensive uh, nomenclature to talk about, you know, gay and lesbian and transgendered folk. And, and that, for me, I find deeply frustrating. Um, and I know for a lot of other people as well, because the, the, the ways that people choose to identify, it's not the whole of the person, but it is significant when somebody says, for instance, you know, you introduce yourself as David and I decide to call you Davy instead. There's a, such a blatant disrespect that um, it's, it's hard not to um, – not to be offended by that or to be offended on behalf of others for that display of disrespect. So I appreciate your sharing because I think some of our listeners might hear at times alternate kind of nomenclature and think, oh, is, is this a disrespectful thing? But, you know, it, it allows us, as, as Father Jim's book says, to build a bridge between, okay, well, maybe I can understand a little bit better where a 77-year-old archbishop is coming from speaking from the floor of the synod though I don't necessarily, even at the end of listening to him, agree with his stance. Yeah, and, and that let me, let me be clear. I don't think that it excuses my lack of facility with where the conversation is. Uh, that's a point where I need to grow and to, and to be aware. But I also, let me, let me give an example. So before I came to Chicago, I was a professor down in the South. 
And I, I was a professor of Catholic studies and I was a professor who was teaching under, with a mandatum and without getting too technical, that's a document between me and a bishop that sort of says that I acknowledge that I will teach in a way that the Catholic church will recognize its teaching when I teach. And so I was in a very progressive diocese uh, and I was very lucky for that in that sense. Um, But one day when I was teaching, I had a student come in who was publicly out and who was wearing a piece of tape over their mouth. And they, the student handed me a card that said, I'm participating in the day of silence. I'm using my privilege to, to, to be silent on behalf of those who feel that they cannot speak. And this was handed to me right before class. And I ended up having an email exchange with that student afterwards where I said, I get what you're doing and I I support political protest. I even support political protest in my classroom. But you need to understand the position that you put me in when you do that. And let me explain to my listeners what I mean. If I had been in a a more conservative diocese, the, the very act of acknowledging that student's protest and acknowledging that is legitimate as a professor of Catholic studies at a Catholic school, that could have been blown up on social media, that could have been reported to a bishop, and I could have been fired. My family could have been put in jeopardy. None of that happened. But I am aware in solidarity with, with my brothers and sisters in the teaching guild that that is a real threat to some faculty. And faculty have to make those kind of decisions every day. And I know that you've got experience with this as well. I, I do, um, but I think I have a different take. I, I don't. I, I think I support entirely your your perspective, and I think it's a reasonable concern and fear because I think everything you described is exactly right. That it could be blown out of proportion. There could be people who are very angry, people who even you know you know complain to the bishop or to the chairs of the department and so forth. I would say a couple things. One is I think there's a very defensible argument that says, you know, the mandatum doesn't say that you can't teach anything other than magisterial teaching. No, that's correct. And so the, the, what's what's res- your responsibility in that regard as a Catholic theologian is to delineate when we say this is what the church teaches and not to misrepresent that. Absolutely. But 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 alternative perspectives are also welcome because, you know, as I like to remind my students and and so many others and something I know you're on board with, which is the, you know, the descriptor attributed to St. Anselm of Canterbury that theology is fides corns intellectum, faith seeking understanding. And we don't have a propositional understanding of our faith as if God handed things down to us written in stone that's unchangeable. Our doctrine develops, our understanding of the human person develops. And so there is room to, to question in order to seek greater understanding of our faith. And I know you support that and I hear that, but it does. You name something that's really important, which is the, the mechanism socially that takes place. And it's not just in the quote world, but it's also in the quote church because the church is in the world. That this mechanism of silencing and fear puts undue burdens, not only on the people who are oppressed, but on the people who wish to be advocates of justice and accompany in solidarity their sisters and brothers. In this case, we're talking about gay and lesbian and transgender folk and bisexual folk. And so it's a tricky thing. I think you're naming something really important. Well, one of the things that I expressed privately to this student was I I tried to talk about the experience of those who had come before and those who lived through certain experiences. And so, you know, I, I talked about I talked with this student about another dear, dear, close heart friend of mine who's a faculty member who has never come out publicly to their community because they just they don't have they don't have the trust that that would be uh, a possibility. And I talked about my experience when I was in college of another friend 
who chose to out themselves publicly began to get physical and written verbal threats from the dorm that this student was in and the went to the dean and complained. The dean made the dorm go through mandatory sensitivity training and every person in the dorm chose to pay the fine instead of go to the training. And that was the end of it. And so that that's the experience of, of my generation coming through this is that the institutions will only go so far to protect you and the institutions at the end of the day will probably side with those who want to see you erased. I think the, the illustration that you're naming also sheds light on and, and allows us to see how this is not only a justice issue when it comes to you know the experience of our, our LGBTQ sisters and brothers, but this is also um, a pro-life issue because people's lives are at stake, um, their their physical safety is at stake, their mental and spiritual safety is at stake. Um, and this is a great example where a whole community, you know, how can this person feel safe in any one of those ways, living in a building under the same roof as all these people who are so, I don't know what the description is, so angry, so fearful, so hostile towards somebody that they would, you know, pay money to make a statement like that is is troubling. And it, what's even worse was that it didn't it didn't manifest itself as anger or hostility. It manifested itself as smug assurance that they were in the correct position and that this other person simply did not deserve to exist. Well, that yeah, that brings me to something too that I think is so important when we're talking about LGBTQ Catholics intentions and frustrations is that while this is true with racism, why it's true as well with gender and Latino Catholics and so forth, I think in a way, as we mentioned earlier, that's that's unique about this community in the church is that there's automatically a pivot, as we saw in the instance of the student that you're describing, a pivot from the identity of the individual and their humanity, their dignity and value to some kind of then theoretical or abstraction of sexual morality. So that if somebody identifies as being gay or lesbian, then all of a sudden people move into the sexual realm. You know, no other population is treated this way in the church. And so to have one's identity, you know, th th there's an irony, I have to say, an irony with um, those who protest at the synod um, or elsewhere. And I think of, you know, certain bishops and, and certain other people with, with a platform who say that the church should not use acronyms like LGBTQ because it seems to endorse, you know, or approve tacitly an ideology or a, a kind of sexual license or something like this. The irony in this is that by by not adopting that language that is the the self-identified language of, of a community, what what the church typically does, I shouldn't say the church, but certain people in the church do, is identify these individuals entirely with sexual, you know, ethics or sexual morality or sexual actions. And and it's just, it, it's not, it, it's a fallible kind of logic. It's, it's not reasonable. It's not philosophically grounded. It's not theologically sustainable. And I think one of the things, and, and I'm speaking now as a systematic theologian, somebody who's very interested, who's actually working on a book right now on theological anthropology, is that to be fair, some of the theological ethics as you know, and, and ethicists have their hands tied because our understanding of the human person, at least that understanding of the human person from the Christian perspective that is used as the bedrock for a lot of our sexual biomedical ethics is rooted in or I should say this, it does not take into adequate account the scientific and psychological and social discoveries over the last, let's say, 800 years. And so 
that that's a real problem. And I'm not here challenging, as it were, church teaching. Um, I want to be very clear about that. But rather, embracing this truth that doctrine develops, I think we have to take seriously the other resources that through our reason, through our experience, through a re-examination of tradition in scripture, um, that we continue to understand better our faith, seek that further understanding. And only then will we have, I think, a, a, a better way of approaching and appropriating you know, the best of, of Christian morality and, and sexual ethics when it comes not just to LGBTQ folks, but to all human persons. So I hear what you're saying, and I think that that's, that that's correct. And you, you said that you're not challenging church teaching, and I, I want to kind of take that and, and move that uh, a little farther down the field. So I also take very seriously Canon 812. I take very seriously the notion of ex cordia ecclesiae and the notion of my responsibility as a teaching theologian within the church. So I, I balance these public disclosures very carefully. That being said, if haters have made it th- thus far uh, in the podcast and they're listening, um, the past few weeks I've had an up on social media of my attacks, people who have chosen to sort of target me and, and sort of question my commitment to Catholicism and what have you. And they do it in association oftentimes with these issues. So let me just say, if in case anyone is unclear, so I am a, a theologian under the mandatum of the church. I'm, I'm a married Catholic. I have children. Nevertheless, I am in full solidarity, and you can consider me queer in this sense. I'm in full solidarity with my mother. I'm in full solidarity with my drag queen friends, with my sex worker friends. I'm in full solidarity with anyone who's along this spectrum, who is, who is in the struggle or is questioning, in the same way that I'm in full solidarity with heterosexuals, but, but I want to particularly publicly identify as a person who is with these people on the margins, because for a number of reasons that are both personal and public, I feel that that's an important, it's an important stand to take. And so I don't often, for reasons that I've discussed in this, in this conversation already, I don't often foreground that, but when I describe myself and when I think about myself in these terms, I think about myself in ways that have largely been defined by the conversation that, that we could call queer theology. And I mean that in the way that queer theologians mean it, which is that there's there's a multiplicity of human experiences that need to be accounted for in our anthropology and in our theology. And I embrace those experiences and I don't turn from them and then say that some are more deficient than others. And so do with that what you will, listeners, but that's that's where I'm at on these issues. And let me just add that I, I think you said that very well and I, I wholly uh, support that and, and I think reflects very closely my own kind of identity and experience of solidarity. And, and let me just say this before we take our break that I think that's exactly the Christian call. You know, it, it, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, et cetera, et cetera. That's not how Jesus operated. That's a post factum kind of description of Jesus's public ministry. Jesus's public ministry was meeting the individual where they were, period. You know, it was only after hearing the story, learning the experience, getting to know, dining with them, maybe journeying with him for many years or months that you have this conversation about, you know, a conversion of life, a change of life. And it's not about what is perceived as sin in this case. It's about recognizing the inherent dignity and value of every person. And so in that regard, I think what you're describing, David, is, is, is not just the call of theologians like you and myself or of public ministers like myself and Father James Martin, but rather it's the call of all Christians walking in the footprints of Jesus um, to, to not, you know, delude ourselves into some kind of 
axiomatic view that we know better than the experience of somebody else, who they are and what they're called to be. And I just want to add one last thing to that. When we look in scripture at the story of Jairus coming to Jesus to have Jesus heal his daughter, and they go and they rush to Jairus's house. And in the midst of that, Jesus is interrupted by a woman who has a, and what the scripture calls an issue of blood for 12 years. If you go back into the kind of law of the time, you understand the incredible risk that that woman took to get to Jesus and to touch the hem of his garment. She could have been killed because of her violation of the blood laws of the time, because she had put everyone who was in that crowded square with her into uh, risk with regard to their own kind of ritual purity. Ritual purity. Yeah. Nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> Amen. And when when we see people who are so despised by the crowd and nevertheless are yearning to just get close enough to Jesus to touch him for a moment, how can we turn our backs on those? How can we say that somehow they're deficient? How can we say that the love that they have is not enough? And it breaks my heart when we as a church shut the doors to them and act like the crowd. So as we enter into this conversation with Father Jim Martin, that's what's the burden of my heart right now, is that we be open to those who simply want to be close to Jesus. Amen, brother. We'll be back in just a moment. Thank you for listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend, Father Dan Haran. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about politics, culture, and current events informed by our Catholic faith. This season, we've been taking a look at tensions and frustrations in the church. This week, we're really excited to be joined by uh, Father James Martin, SJ. He is editor-at-large at America Magazine, and he is the author of many, many books, all of which are excellent. Um, most recently, and the reason we have him here joining us, is a book titled Building a Bridge. Father Jim, welcome. Thanks. Good to be with you, Dan. You know, it'd be uh, great. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of you. Uh, you're, you're very well known, and for, for good reason, the, the work you've done in your writing and your speaking, uh, your editing in America. Um, but the reason we've invited you to join us is to share a little bit about 
your experience, uh, both writing the book, Building a Bridge, but also uh, being a bridge of sorts yourself as uh, a Roman Catholic priest, as a, as a Jesuit, um, in, in trying to uh, create a space where our LGBTQ sisters and brothers uh, can feel more heard and at the same time invite the church to, you know, recognize them in a way. So, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you, you know, got into this particular ministry and what your experience has been so far. Sure. Uh, like most people in the Catholic Church and yourself, I'm sure, I worked on a rather informal basis with LGBT people uh, as a Jesuit and as a priest. And that would include uh, spiritual direction, confessions, you know, just seeing them as friends. Uh, from time to time uh, at America Magazine, where I work, I would publish articles uh, advocating for them because I felt that they didn't have much of a voice in the church. But it was really informal. And then um, in June 2016, you might remember the Pulse nightclub massacre. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. When 49 people were killed in a predominantly gay nightclub in Orlando. And I noticed that unlike in other mass shootings, uh, the U.S. bishops really didn't extend any sort of public sympathy. I mean, as you know, um, every time there's a shooting, unfortunately, there are so many in our country. Uh, the bishops will say, we stand with this community, or we extend our condolences, you know, as they should for all groups. But after the Pulse nightclub massacre, there was pretty much silence uniformly, and it really disturbed me. I thought, you know, because these people are gay, they don't get sympathy, they don't get any sort of acknowledgement. And a lot of the people were Catholic, a lot of Latino Catholics down there. And so I did a, a Facebook video that got a lot of hits, and that led to a talk, and that led to the book, uh, which was trying to help build bridges, as you said, between the institutional church and the LGBT community. But it really came out of a disappointment that I saw people who were uh, seemed unwilling to acknowledge or even recognize that these people existed, um, you know, even after a massacre. That, 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 to me, was kind of the catalyst for the book. Well, the, the point you just made about um, the kind of... Uh overlooking or ignoring or writing off a whole community of people uh, reminds me of one of one of the major kind of points of your book, which which I think is so important and yet so basic. Um, and I know you've talked about this a lot publicly, which is, you know, one of the things that uh, those of us in church leadership, uh, particularly the bishops, uh, the institutional or hierarchical church can do uh, is use the language, the terms, the the identity that LGBTQ uh, women and men prefer. So simply calling gay people gay people or lesbians lesbians rather than this kind of clinical language of same-sex attraction, quote-unquote, or homosexual. I mean, people don't talk about straight people that way. Um, can you say more about what, what you've seen um, ministering to uh, and, and accompanying and, and hearing from LGBTQ Catholics about the significance of, of identity and name? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I was just at a, a meeting with students um, at St. John's University in Queens, and we had a little breakout session without breaking confidence. Uh, one guy in the group said, well, I don't like that term, and I'm not going to use that term. And there were all these LGBT kids around, and rather than my answering, I said, well, why don't you guys answer? And they basically said, look, that's the term we use. Why would you not use the term that we choose to use? And he said, well, it's reducing you to, you know, just your sexuality. And one of them said, well, you know, how the heck is same-sex attracted any better? So 
you know, I think it's really incumbent upon us to listen to what people uh, say about themselves and how they name themselves. Uh, you know, the example I always give is, uh, you know, we don't use the word Negroes any longer in this country. And the reason is because African-Americans and blacks have, you know, it essentially asked the culture to use other terms, African-Americans and blacks. And so why would I not use that? So if the church persists in using language that is outdated, antiquated, uh, clinical, as you say correctly, or even offensive, you know, we're going to find it very difficult to begin to dialogue with the group. It's just a matter of respect. And it really is. It's such a small thing. Uh, but there are quite a few people who are resisting, and I really think that's, um, you know, preventing uh, us from going forward. Well, Jim, that brings up an, uh, a point for me. And when we look at the church refusing to utilize or being reluctant to utilize terms that a community itself is advocating, uh, it's almost like they're saying that the experience of these persons is not legitimate and that their experience of themselves should not be trusted. But that's my outsider perspective. Is that what you've encountered when you've been in these, because you're at the crux of these conversations. Is that is that your perspective or am I missing something here? No, I think that's accurate. And I think part of it is also that some people feel that using LGBT is in a sense caving. You know, it's caving to this community. Uh, and it's, it's somehow, you know, an implicit endorsement of same-sex marriage, for example. But really, no one, uh, except for maybe a handful of people in the LGBT community, use terms like same-sex attracted. And that is what some church leaders and bishops persist in using, and it's really offensive to them. Uh, and so, and then besides, the terms that, that are being proposed as alternatives, as you said, same-sex attraction or same-sex affliction disorder, you know, are really offensive to these people. You know, LGBT is fairly neutral as far as I see. And there are a lot of people who say, well, it connotes an ideology. And I say, look, if you're a 13-year-old gay boy, you know, who's just coming out, you're not talking about ideology. You're just talking about who you are and trying to make sense of who you are. And if you have someone saying to you, you can't even use that word, I mean, it really kind of erases their their identity, the part of their identity, and it, and it sort of, uh, you know, erases who they are in the public square and in the church. So I, I feel pretty strongly about it. Yeah, uh, I think I agree with you entirely on that point. Um, you know, back to the to the naming. You know, Dave, David asked this question, and it's got me thinking about, you know, the names that that are so significant in Scripture, right? Like the naming of Abram and Abraham. I, I think about my own name. You know, formally it's Daniel, but I prefer to be called Dan. And I heard somebody recently saying, uh, you know, calling somebody by another name would be like if I introduced myself as Dan and somebody continued and insisted on calling me Daniel. <laughs> I mean, it's not as yeah. offensive as the example you used centering on on race. But I, I want to kind of ask you, uh, you know, Jim, your thoughts about why, why do you think the pushback is so strong? At times, I wonder, I mean, such a simple little thing, you know, you, you name that some, some kind of hostile folks will say, well, this is an ideology. Um, that doesn't seem to explain it to me. Is, is there something more at, at work here? There is. There is, of course, something more. And it's basically fear. The New Testament says, I think it's in the letter to John, uh, perfect love drives out fear. And I think perfect fear drives out love. And essentially, you have um, some people who are fearful of a couple of things. Number one, uh, they are fearful of people who are other, who are different. 
Then they're fearful of the, the, the LGBT person per se. And then they're fearful of any sort of listening or change. You know, if we, if we listen to LGBT people, listen to their experiences. And here I always hear people say, well, they're sinful. Why should we listen to their experiences? Well, everybody's sinful. I was just going to say, newsflash, we're all sinners. No. <laughs> That's not the you issue. Know, I was, um, yeah, I struggle with that frequently. Uh, I was in a, a talk recently. They said, why would you want us to listen to sinners? And I said, you know, you and I are sinful. And the bishop of this diocese is sinful. Everyone is sinful. Pope Francis is sinful. But it is only the LGBT person who gets singled out as the sinner, the public sinner. And frequently, these people are, you know, they're not in a relationship, they're not married, they're not doing anything that's against the catechism, but they're still labeled as sinful. So it's fear of listening to a person who they think is sinful. And then finally, Dan, um, and I know we've talked about this, you know, one-on-one, I think there are a lot of people who have reacted to the book, you know, who are fearful of their own complicated sexuality. And so if you're bringing up topics that are difficult for them to deal with internally, that anger and that uh, that emotion is going to be directed outward. Uh, and so that, that's happening a lot as well. Well, so Jim, Dan was just asking you about the, the sort of experience of the church towards these persons, but you've also had the, the experience, and you mentioned this a moment ago, of being in small groups with persons who are gay and lesbian and bisexual. What is their experience of the church right now? I know that that's a broad question, but kind of what what are you seeing as these people are trying to reach out back to the church? A great deal of rejection. Uh, I don't think we can ever underestimate the the rejection that people feel. And interestingly, people who might be more open-minded and thoughtful and live in more tolerant parishes might doubt this. Uh, and in fact, I described an example of a, a lesbian woman who told me that her pastor told her, point blank, your kind are not welcome here. Oh, my God. And you should find another parish. And I was in a small group again, and one of the people said, I don't believe that. And several people raised their hands and offered their own experiences. So it's it's really a great deal of rejection and exclusion and sometimes being mocked or uh, singled out from the pulpit. And so they feel a great deal of... Um, loneliness in the church, and they don't feel like it's their church sometimes. So it's very sad, and, and one of the reasons I'm trying to do this is to help these people feel comfortable in what is, after all, their church. I mean, it's their church, too. They're just as Catholic as Pope Francis, you and I, or, you know, the local bishop. I think that... So it's a great deal of rejection and some, you know, really even spiritually abusive uh, moments for them. I, I think you bring up a really good point that's got me thinking back to your, your comment earlier about fear uh, being, you know, the major reason there's such pushback, there's such hostility, there's such animosity. And I'm reminded of conversations that David and I have had with with some of our other guests this season talking about communities that not unlike the LGBT community ha- have felt ignored, overlooked, rejected, dismissed. Um, and I'm reminded of what Dr. Nanko Fernand- uh, Fernandez said about um, Latino Catholics, and this was right after the Equentro number five. And she said, you know, it's interesting that, you know, as the number of immigrant Latino Catholics increases, all of these reports, uh, all of these kind of polls are showing that there's this all of a sudden increase in that 
um, you know, Latino Catholics are, are considered new or, or a new community. And she says, we have always been here. We were here before the waves of Western European immigration. And I'm reminded of what uh, Kim Limor said about black Catholics in, in the United States, that they've always been here. And, and I feel like there's a similar kind of pattern here, too, with LGBT Catholics just because now there's a, a moment, it seems, where it's it's safe or safer in, in many places and in many communities, it's still not safe for people to come out, that because there's increased visibility, a lot of um, straight Catholics perhaps will, will say, well, this is a new phenomenon. This is a kind of a fad or something like this, where this is a cultural, you know, like you said earlier, Jim, an ideology or something. But is it your experience that similar to Latino and, and black Catholics, that a lot of LGBT Catholics feel like, hey, we've always been here, whether you've seen us or not. I think that's accurate. I think the the, the other way of looking at it is that uh, while Latino and African-American Catholics have always been there, they've also been visible, uh, whereas the LGBT person is largely invisible. And so you may not have any idea how many LGBT people are in your parish, but you're right, they've always been there. And they've always been there in the Latino and African-American community, too. I think what really is sad for me is that, uh, you know, here in 2018, we can have something which is wonderful, like Encuentro. Uh, we can have celebrations of African-American Catholics. There's nothing comparable for LGBT people. There's no LGBT day at the Vatican. There's no LGBT festival at, uh, you know, uh, worldwide. The U.S. bishops don't uh, ask us to pray for LGBT people. There's nothing comparable. Certain things are starting. Uh, Cardinal Joseph Tobin, the Archbishop of Newark, had a welcome mass uh, in his parish, um, excuse me, in his uh, cathedral basilica last year. Uh, the World Meeting of Families invited me to come to talk about LGBT people in Dublin. But really, when you think about the, the way that um, Latinos and African Americans finally, you know, are being understood and welcomed as important members of the body of Christ, um, there's nothing comparable for the LGBT person who is still made to feel uh, like they don't belong. And, and they're sometimes told that. And, and, and it seems that when there are these little baby steps like you're describing, I, I think of the, the very kind of proactive and welcoming community of uh, St. Paul the Apostle, the Paulist uh, parish in, in New York, or even Father Brian Massengale's uh, retreat for you know, uh, uh, gay priests and seminarians in his home diocese of Milwaukee and the the vitriol that those um, yeah. programs have met is just so disparaging. Well, it is. And, you know, I, I said earlier I was invited to speak at World Media Families, and the topic was chosen by the Vatican, and the Vatican vetted the talk. And the talk was called Showing Welcome and Respect in Our Parishes to LGBT Catholics and Their Families. And it was so offensive to some people that they organized a completely different uh, meeting of families called the Meeting of Concerned Families. So even the idea that a priest in good standing like myself would give a talk that was vetted by the Vatican about welcoming people in our parishes was simply too much for people. And it really is, it's, it is kind of shocking. And I think the sad thing for me is that LGBT people see this. I mean, that registers with them. And that makes them feel even more excluded, which is certainly not what Jesus wanted for people. I just want to follow on on some of the questions that Dan asked a moment ago about differing experiences. So Latino, Latino experience, African-American experience, and gay and, lesbian, gay and lesbian experience. One of the things that we've been discovering in these conversations this season 
is that it's when we as white males ask these questions, we tend with our questions sometimes to silo a person's experience. But a person who is gay and lesbian and African-American or gay and lesbian and Latino or Latinoa, they don't have just one experience one day and another experience another day. As, as I heard one person say, you know, which oppression do you want me to start with? And so I want to ask you a question about intersectionality. What has been your experience of the ways in which people who are not coming from the majority population in this country, the kind of white and I mean by the I'm scare quoting majority here, but how what has been the experience of intersectionality as you've been having these conversations about uh, gay and lesbian issues and bisexual issues in the church? Well, that's another good question, and I'm I'm no expert, and again I'm speaking as a, a white male myself. But you know, for example, people of color who are LGBT or lesbians tell me that it is you know doubly or triple to navigate through all of these things. And so you have sexism, sexism in the church and racism in different parts of our country. And then on top of that, the LGBT question uh, just makes it more difficult. So we have to remember, as you're saying, that people are multiple identities. And, you know, I think the, the important thing for me is that the way Jesus looked at people uh, was as individuals. And so you, you think about him speaking to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Well, there's two reasons he shouldn't be talking to her. She's a Samaritan, and she's a woman. And he does anyway, and he sees her in a sense, uh, this woman who is kind of has two identities, right, and probably more, as a person. And as a person with a rich and complex history like we all have. And, and that's, I think, the invitation for the church. And we can't do that as a church until we start listening to these people. And we have not done that. Because they are seen first and all, all always as sinners. And all they need to hear, according to some church leaders, is the catechism. And, you know, the catechism is great, but there is no other group that we simply, you know, sort of present the catechism to without listening to their lived experience. No other group. And we need to treat them more like Jesus treated them. I think that's a, a, a secretly Franciscan thing you just said, Father Jim, about the particularity. <laughs> <I hope so. laughs> it's very uh, John Dunn Scotus-like, and I, I, I couldn't agree more, um, you know, in, invoking a bit of Ignatian spirituality here, you know, as I imagine uh, those gospel encounters of, of Christ, you know, meeting various people, he meets them. He doesn't see first the sin. Um, and, and I really appreciate you, you mentioning and, and in your work and in your speaking and in this conversation, highlighting the fact that this community is really the only community in the church in which sin comes before person. Um, and it's deeply unchristian, deeply anti-Catholic in a sense, um, and, and does not align with, with what it is we profess to believe. Um, I, I, I guess that raises the question, you know, what can we do? <laughs> you know, where do we go from here? Well, we can be honest about our attitudes, first of all, within the church. Uh, we can understand that, that there are places in the church where there's a great deal of homophobia. Obviously, there are places where there is not, and people are welcome. And I think that we need to really listen to their experiences. Nothing is a substitute for stories. Nothing can substitute for stories. This is one reason why Jesus, as you both know, taught in parables. Uh, definitions and arguments sometimes close our minds down and make us more combative. A story, uh, you know, opens our minds up when... Jesus was asked what the reign of God is like. He didn't say, here are my ten points, right? Uh, as much as we love Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> he didn't answer like that. No. <laughs> he said, let me tell you a story. 
Let me tell you a story about a woman searching for a coin or a, a father welcoming his wayward son back. And so LGBT people are stories who need to be listened to in the same way that we listen to uh, Jesus' stories, because it'll help us open our mind and move past this desire to categorize them, you know, as sinners only. I, I think the emphasis on story, too, is so significant. It reminds me of an interview I heard recently um, with a political advisor to, of all things, former Speaker Newt Gingrich back in the 90s at the kind of birth of um, civil wedge issues. If, if you, you know, when, when there was a lot of kind of homophobia and anti-LGBTQ kind of rhetoric, you know, that was the Defense of Marriage Act era and so forth. And this political advisor to the Speaker um, in 2018 said, you know, we were able to do that, you know, 20, 30 years ago in a way that could not be done today because back then a lot of people didn't know or they didn't realize that they knew gay and lesbian and transgender people. But today that's different. And and he said, you know, that is that's over. <laughs> you know, it's it's a dead political from a from a political perspective. And it got me thinking about the church and the significance of brave women and men who have come out and, and share their story, as you say, and what, what a transformative experience that is. On the one hand, it's, it's very hopeful. On the other hand, it strikes me as very unfair that the people who are oppressed and, and risk violence, uh, being the victims of violence or the targets of it, are the ones nevertheless burdened with having to kind of change the story, you know, the public recognition I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or if that resonates with, you know, your experience in, in this work. It does. That's a really, that's a great point and it's a really interesting way of putting it. I hadn't heard it quite put that way. And if you're right, I think what we also see is that these people, you know, who have been burdened by this rejection of the church are still in the church. And so here you have these people who really have to make a conscious choice to stay in the church even though they feel rejected. And I often think of Jesus' response to the centurion this kind of unlikely person who comes to Jesus and asks for healing for his servant, and Jesus is amazed at his faith. And sometimes you hear people who have been rejected, like the lesbian woman I talked about, uh, who was told, your kind aren't welcome. And what did she do? She found another parish. And so here's someone who is persisting in her faith, and in a sense, I sometimes think that the faith of LGBT people is greater than that of straight people, because they really have to claim their place in the church and stick it out, even though pastors and uh, brothers and sisters and lay pastoral associates and all sorts of people tell them they're not welcome. So I'm trying to help this group that I think already does have a great deal of faith. So, Father Jim, one of the things that Dan and I have observed in this, and as we've been talking particularly to Kim Limor about the African-American experience, some things that she said brought up to me a, a quote from James Cone, and that is when people who have a certain amount of visible privilege begin to identify themselves with those who are who are on the margins. The the powers that be will begin to treat those people with privilege like they're on the margins, and they'll begin to group them with them. And you can think of any number of examples of this from our own American history. So I know that you have been utilizing your privilege both as a white male but also as a priest uh, in the church to advocate for these people. And I know that you've gotten a backlash for it, but I wonder if you could speak to me and to Dan about your experience of that shift as people try and marginalize you in the midst of this. How, how has that, what has been your experience of that? Yeah, that's true. And I, I agree. I'd never heard that James Cone quote, but it's, it's true. And I often look at the story of Zacchaeus, 
without rehearsing the whole thing, uh, Jesus is going through Jericho, and he sees the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, who climbs a tree. And he is seen as the chief sinner in the area, because he's the tax collector. And Jesus calls him down in front of everyone. And my favorite line in the story, which had eluded me or escaped me until recently, was, uh, and all who saw it began to grumble. And so an extension of mercy to someone who has seen us on the margins makes everyone grumble. And by the way, that's including the disciples, as Scripture Scholar told me. So it's not surprising that there's grumbling and there's been backlash. I've been um, targeted on social media. I've been called all sorts of names, heretic and false priest and all sorts of bad names that I won't say under podcasts. Uh, and it's been surprising. I The book is pretty mild. It doesn't challenge any church teaching. But uh, the backlash has been intense. Now, I should say that the, the positive reaction has also been intense among uh, most people. But I, I realized that not everyone's going to love me, like me, approve of me. Uh, I have the support of my Jesuit superiors. I know that this is the right thing to do. I'm not challenging any church teaching. And it is a way of standing with Jesus who underwent this as well. And so, you know, Jesus underwent it. Who am I not to undergo it? But it has been surprising, and it is uh, relentless. Well, Father James Martin, uh, in the face of your prophetic witness there and the work you're doing, the real pastoral ministry that you're you're performing, and uh, and at, at the cost, like you said, that, you know, Jesus faced, we get a little share of that. You're certainly having yours. Um, David and I would like to thank you for taking the time to be with us, uh, to share your experience and what has been relayed to you in your experience of ministry with the LGBTQ community. And uh, we, we thank you for taking the time and keep up the, uh, the important work that you're doing. Thanks very much and keep up your important work as well, both of you. Thank you. Thank you again. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studio here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening.